It's Ari Grosen. I'm here with another fun-filled episode of that 4K podcast. This week's topic, we're going to talk about tedious tasks that 4K plan sponsors uh, need to complete. And of course, uh, as always, first things first, let's talk about some of the events that are coming up. On May the 10th, uh, we are going to have a great uh, event with uh, Jamie Raskin, congressman from uh, Maryland. Uh, that's Monday, May 10th, 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, Feel free to attend. It's going to be a great, uh, great fun event. Uh, get to talk to uh, Congressman Raskin about his doings in Congress, as well as his background as a uh, law firm, a law school professor. I should know that. Um, so it should be interesting take uh, from him. We were supposed to have him in January at that 401k National Virtual Conference. Of course, he had to cancel. Uh, there was this little thing called impeachment coming up. Uh, and he was the house impeachment manager, you know, can't tell uh, Nancy Pelosi, sorry, I, I got to miss, uh, you know, I got to cut out for a half hour to talk to these uh, 401k advisors and, and TPAs and some event. Yeah, it really didn't work out. But uh, thankfully, he's rescheduled for all of us to attend. So no entrance fee, whatnot. And speaking of about entrance fees and tickets and all that kind of stuff, we've got some live events, hopefully. Uh, come September, September 10th, we will be in St. Louis at Bush Stadium. September 24th, we will be at Target Field in Minneapolis. September 29th, that is a Wednesday. Uh, we will be at um, Minute Maid Park in Houston, Texas. And, uh, of course, next January, that National Virtual Conference 2022, two-day event, uh, $20.22 to sign up. Uh, great uh, event. Uh, we should have some information eventually about some of the people that are uh, speaking at these events, as well as uh, some appearances uh, from sports uh, celebrities and whatnot. Go to that 401k site.com for further information. Uh, as far as you know, today's topic, um, you know, there's certain tedious tasks out there in life that we just really don't want to do. Um, I think that for me, uh, I think the cleaning up the laundry room uh, is not high on my list, but really uh, cleaning up the bathroom is never never on my highest of, of things to do. Um, and for plant sponsors, there are a lot of tedious tasks they'd like to avoid. And unlike my bathroom, if, you know, I have a really disgusting bathroom, that's on me. And uh, uh, I don't have very many guests these days thanks to COVID, but, um, you know, that's on me. But as a plant fiduciary, plant sponsors can't really say, you know what, uh, forget about it. Because as plant fiduciaries, as we all know, they have a high, highest duty of care in, in equity in law. And so they, if they neglect things, it's on them. Uh, it could cost them, and it doesn't make the situation go away. It only makes things worse because if you don't fix errors, you don't take care of things ahead of time, uh, they never disappear. They only they only get worse uh, and worse. And, you know, there's certain things that are just tedious for what K plan sponsor to deal with um, that, uh, you know, uh, even as an arrest attorney, a, fixing these errors can be tedious. High on the my list is eligibility requirements, and we all know that a retirement plan has eligibility requirements. Of course, if they just have date of hire, um, you know, date of hire and uh, immediate entry or whatnot, but they must complete. Even if it is theoretically immediate eligibility, it's still a requirement they have to meet. You know, they have to be hired. Uh, 
you know, as with 401k plans, you know, obviously, like I said, there's a media eligibility, there's a thousand hours within a year of employment, uh, that whole year of service. And regardless of eligibility, plan sponsors really need to make sure that the eligibility requirements are tracked to make sure that employees become participants with the plan documents say they can become a participant. Um, and it's important for them to make sure that, you know, uh, eligibility and entry and all that stuff is consistent with what the plan document says. And the problem is, is that when a plan sponsor fails to include eligible employees plan participants, it may require them to make a corrective employer contribution plus earnings, um, whether they're for employer contributions or what we call missed salary deferral opportunities. Um, it's just ridiculous. Um, the missed deferral opportunity is one of those ridiculous errors if you think about it. Because in a you know if you for six months or whatnot, if you forgot to include somebody as a participant, and even if they weren't going to defer defer, uh, the requirements of fixing that missed um, deferral opportunity is for the employer to make a qualified non-elected contribution plus earnings. Uh, that's a headache, and I, I think that's one of those really painful errors because. Uh, if that employee was never going to defer, or even if they did defer, that's money coming out of the employer's pocket to fix a mistake uh, they should have, you know, realized from the get-go. And, um, and and like I said, you got to make those contributions, those corrective contributions. You know, again, if it was if it isn't caught in a specific period of time, um, you got to make it to them whether they were ever going to defer or not. And of course, you know, obviously one of the major responsibilities of any good TPA is to track eligibility, but you know, many errors do occur because the plan sponsor failed to report uh, hirings uh, and whatnot. Um, you know, it, if the 401k plan sponsor does a better job of tracking eligibility on their side and they do it correctly, obviously errors are really gonna happen. But again, I think eligibility requirements is one of those things that nobody really thinks about. Um, I I come from the school of Kiss. I mean, not because I, I like the band Kiss, which I do, but I believe keep it simple, stupid. And there, I think there are some eligibility requirements that I think are, are dumber than others. Um, I think that the dumbest requirement, uh, dumbest eligibility entry thing is uh, immediate entry. I hate immediate entry. Um, and the reason I hate immediate entry is just common sense. Five days a week, 52 days a year, we don't count Saturdays or Sundays. And forget about holidays for, for a minute because, you know, every state has different holidays. In New York, uh, I think some employees celebrate Lincoln's birthday and, and other states they don't. They're still upset about the, uh, was it the aggression by the North, the whole Civil War. But let's say there are 260 working days. Um, the problem with immediate entry is you're tracking essentially 260 entry points, entry 260 days where there could be somebody entering the plan. That's why I like monthly entry. Uh, that's why I like semi-annual or, or quarterly. Anything that you know, anything that keeps it simple. Uh, monthly, I like monthly because I was a plan participant once too. Um, but other requirements, I just think that there needs to be like this uniform period where people, um, you know, come in. Um, so I think it's uh, it's it's 
a silly error that uh, unfortunately happens uh, quite a bit. And, and speaking of errors that happen quite a bit that are silly, depositing salad deferrals uh, timely um, and how many plan sponsors don't do that. They deposit it late. And of course, everybody remembers that a 401k plan is a cash deferred arrangement. And obviously the hallmark of any cash deferred arrangement plan is the use of the plan participants to defer taxes on their salary for elective contributions or you know obviously if it's a Roth but very few people do use Roth where they pay the taxes up front and one of the basic you know when you think about it for 1k plan most of the contributions of course are going to be salary deferral uh, deposits um, and you know, depositing money into a 401k plan, it's consistent. It's it should it's you know, depending on payroll, it should be very quick and, and very uh, automatic. Um, you know, we had a, a problem in the 401k world a few years back when we had a regulation that uh, said that a plan sponsor had a safe harbor uh, in depositing deferrals as long as they did it by the 15th day of the following month, and then years ago. Department of Labor told plan sponsors uh, and plan providers that it we, that they interpret the uh, regulation as as soon as possible, uh, and uh, that was a problem for many years. As many plan sponsors weren't aware of it because they weren't told by their plan providers, um, and it took some time to getting used to. And, and still, when we talk about plan errors, one consistent hallmark. Of my practice in correcting errors has been the use uh, has been correcting the late deferral deposits, um, you know, uh, and of course the problem is the Department of Labor ever since then, uh, since they had their reinterpretation or reimagining or a reboot of that regulation, uh, they scaled up the enforcement. You know, they started to require. Uh, that late deferral deposit question on Form 5500, which is signed, un uh, uh, signed under penalties of perjury. Uh, they've also instituted that whole uh, voluntary compliance program, the voluntary fiduciary compliance program on their end. So they're cracking down on it. It's a tedious task. Um, you know, uh, depositing deferrals late is, you know, one of the most avoidable plan errors out there, yet it's the most fre frequent. Um, you know, back in the day, you know, one of the funny, funniest things I remember, I, I worked for a TPA and the guy running the TPA place, I, I couldn't stand. Not, not the guy who owned it, who was the majority owner, but one of the guys who was day to day running it. And I remember him working there and he demanded, he didn't want clients to use ACH for salad deferral deposits, which is now of course the norm. He wanted people to FedEx him a check. I, I just never understood it, so he could verify the checks. Uh, but you know, this is a guy who 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 got into the business in the '80s, and uh, ACH was a foreign concept to him. You know, if he was still in the TPA business, which I don't believe that he is, I believe that he's barred by the government. But if he was, um, you know, still in the business, uh, that process where plan sponsors would you know FedEx checks. Uh, that that world doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I mean, I guess it could exist if you want plan sponsors to be uh, charged with uh, late deferral deposits, but um, you know, that's that that that's that's 
that's a, a part of our past. Uh, ACH makes everything instantaneous. In the Department of Labor, uh, I understand their plight and, and their insistence that money be deposited as, as quickly as possible. And, and somebody who was a 401k plan participant for many years, uh, I wouldn't want my employer to making money, any type of money or any type of uh, issue uh, on my float, on the float of my salary deferrals. I want that money in as soon as possible. So we certainly know why the Department of Labor is adamant about this regulation. Uh, technology has made uh, it easy for us to no longer rely on that 15th day of the following month. Um, and and I, the way I look at it, there's absolutely no reason why salary deferrals can't be made within three business days, especially with online banking. You know, that, that ACH is instantaneous. Um, I, I know that, unfortunately, uh, this week uh, I, I run a 401k plan, uh, a new PEP, and uh, the plan provider just debited 800 bucks out of my account uh, for fees that should have been taken out of participant accounts. Uh, it's 800 bucks, but it's a, it's a silly error, but you know, uh, thank God I had the 800 bucks to cover that. That, that, was, a, that was a surprise. But you know, it, to me, it's an easy process. I mean, of course, there are going to be employers out there that have multiple locations. I mean, somebody who's, you know, uh, one big, uh, two big errors with uh, salary deferral deposits that to fix it. Uh, having clients uh, in the restaurant business that had multiple locations—that's a headache. Um, on the DLS side, it's a headache. I represented two large restaurant groups, um, two different restaurant groups that you, you would certainly know their names. And uh, the problem why they were constantly being late with deferrals is because they were dealing with multiple locations, more importantly, dealing with multiple payroll providers, which was just really a headache. Um, so, you know, it's a headache, but it, it's got to be done. It's got to be done consistently. And the problem with late deferral deposits is I very, I very rarely find that a plan sponsor is late once. Usually, if they're late once, they're late twice, three, four, five, six, seven times, whatnot, uh, and they're consistent. Um, you know, quite frequent. So maybe not consistent, but certainly frequently. Um, as far as another tedious task is keeping copies of all plain documents. Plan sponsors should certainly hold the risk of records for at least seven years. But plain documents they should keep forever. Um, you know, the IRS has this view that if a plan sponsor is missing a certain restatement or certain plan amendment, then it never ever happens. Um, you know, every few years we know that the IRS requires a restatement process or an amendment. We are currently in the cycle three restatement process. When the plan is being audited or the plan is seeking a, some sort of favorable determination letter for the five people that still try to get one, the plan sponsor is often required and usually required to show the previous plan documents. Even with um, uh, late salary deferral deposit, the Department of Labor is going to ask for a copy of the plan document at the time of the error or whatnot. So, um, you know, there's nothing worse than having to represent plan sponsors on an audit who are missing a plan amendment and restatement that they did uh, do, but for some reason they don't have it, and so they have to go through an audit cap correction, correction program and shell out thousands of dollars of penalties that they shouldn't have paid had they had a copy uh, of their plan restatement or plan amendment. 
Um, so every plan, document, plan amendment, uh, plan restatement, these are things that should be kept for good. Um, of course, next on my list is handing out notices and SPDs. Um, ERISA is all about protecting participant rights, and certain rights are uh, reserved for plan participants, especially when it comes to notices and copies of the summary plan description. Uh, it's important that a plan sponsor obviously completes that task uh, by providing the required notices, whether it's a safe harbor notice uh, that they may still have with matching contributions or uh, notice dealing with a fund change or a blackout period or a new SPD. It's important for plan sponsors to make sure that that task, usually handled by the TPA uh not the SPD, handing out the SPD, that's really an HR function, but for other notices, make sure that those notices are done. Uh, next on my hit list, reviewing fee disclosures. 401k plan sponsors obviously get disclosures from the plan providers um, on that direct and indirect compensation that these plan providers receive for servicing the 401k plan. And obviously the problem with disclosures is that too many plan sponsors um, don't review them, they put them in the back of the drawer, and, uh, you know, and, and plan sponsors have a duty to only pay reasonable plan expenses. And the only way they can do that is to actually benchmark the fees being charged by their, their plan providers for what's out there in the marketplace that's, that's similar in services. Um, and too many plan sponsors treat that um, fee disclosure notices, you know, like they would... Uh, like like I do with my bank privacy statements or bank, bank privacy notices where I just chuck in the garbage. 401k plan sponsor really has to be diligent um, and, and, and reviewing those forms and, and seeing whether the fees being charged are reasonable or not. Uh, the only way to do that is to go out in the marketplace and, and see what other plan providers charge. You know, uh, here I am sitting downstairs in my house and this work was completed not by the um, contractors that we hired originally. Uh, contractors we hired originally, we hired them to do a lot of work around the house. They were expensive. We didn't know how expensive because we didn't shop around. We liked these guys. And then when Hurricane Sandy hit our house, all of a sudden they saw dollar signs and thought that they could get us. Uh, and they came out with this really ridiculous fee of fixing the downstairs where I'm sitting at um, and it was only at that time did we realize that we were being overcharged for all those years and the problem is is that when you're overcharged in, in your private life for stuff that you do um, you know work on the house or, or the new car whatever it may be uh, you're out of pocket you overspent that's on you but when you're a plant producer, you don't have that excuse because you're you're responsible for the monies of other people. And that means you have to have a higher duty of care. You have to have more care for the money of other people than your own. So that's why it's important for plant sponsors to look at those uh, fee disclosures and do something about it and, and see whether the fees being charged to the plan are reasonable for the services provided. Next on my list... Uh, it's a big one because I don't, you know, I don't think that people take it seriously. Just, uh, just today, I had a, a TPA ask me whether uh, banned rentals, banned uniform rentals, are an education expense. Uh, I said no. 
Um, I didn't even ask if it was for post-secondary. Uh, it's just, I know that book fees are not, uh, available for hardships. So, um, I don't think that, uh, you know, uniforms for the band are as well, but that goes to the point, uh, hardship requests have to be substantiated. Um, we cannot take the word for, uh, plan participants that they really need the money. They actually have to substantiate it. The regs say, um, whether it's a medical expense, funeral expense, uh, expenses to prevent addiction or foreclosure, or for educational expenses. It's important uh, that plan sponsors uh, take that tedious task and substantiate and make sure that the uh, expenses are um, payable for hardship. You know, I've, I've had situations where, you know, somebody wants uh, to pay a, a bill for a, a tuition that they owed seven years ago, and, and you, can't, you can't do that. Uh, I, I, I once had a hardship request on prison stationery. Um, there was no hardship request. Uh, you know, there was no, uh, you know, request. And I, I, I assure you, uh, somebody asking for uh, money for the prison commissary, that would not be uh, an allowable hardship distribution. And uh, the IRS has pointed in the last few years that on audit, they will look at hardship requests uh, for substantiation, especially when there are multiple requests from one plan participant. So um, it's one of those things that, you know, you can't take a plan participant's word on it. And years ago, there was one large provider that had this process where, you know, they would offer a blanket hardship approval without substantiation. And I said that that was a problem. And I don't think that plan provider does that anymore. Uh, next on the list is uh, making sure participant loans are paid. Uh, you know, loan provision is very popular, except I've seen it blow up. Uh, that is why I always, and when it comes to loans, uh, a 401k plan should not be a check cashing operation or a, a pawn shop or a uh, payday loan place. Uh, the reason why I don't think they should be is because the headaches of repaying plan loans through salary deferrals. That's why I don't like plans with multiple plan loans, uh, allowing for multiple plan loans outstanding at one time. I like to have one loan outstanding at a time. I do like uh, to offer the plan participants the opportunity to uh, refinance or uh, consolidate and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when you have a plan with seven or eight loans outstanding for a participant, you know, uh, keep it simple stupid means that, uh, you know, for these multiple loans outstanding, uh, TPA can forget to pay one of those loans or the plan sponsor can forget to remit for one of those loans. And here we have a loan default. Oops, you know, there's nothing worse to not pull out a plan participant's money to pay off a loan and then say, you know, well, by the way, you have a deemed distribution and here's a 1099 for, you know, 20 grand. Um, it, it's just a headache. Uh, you know, obviously 401k plan loans that default are a prohibited transaction. Uh, they have to be fixed uh, through the issuance of a 1099. Um, unless, of course, the plan sponsor goofed and for some ways to try to self-correct that, but um, I just think that it's important to plan sponsors to realize that plan participant loans have to be paid and, and make sure that they're paid at least on a quarterly basis to avoid a default. And again, they can certainly 
help limit the possibilities of errors by putting smart provisions in their loan policy, which again, one loan outstanding at a time, minimum loan of a thousand bucks, payable immediately upon termination. I like that as well. But, uh, you know, you keep it simple, stupid, you keep out of trouble. Uh, if you don't keep it simple, stupid, you are stupid. Uh, you're asking for trouble. And, uh, you know, so many times you'll see a plan provision. And one of my favorite phrases is based, it's based on, a, I saw years ago, I was working for a TPA. And I was an arrest attorney in San Diego who wrote a matching provision for one of his clients. And I reviewed it. And I said, you know what? I know what he was trying to do, but uh, good luck trying to administer that. Um, that's why I like plan provisions that are easily uh, for TPAs uh, to administer and, and not goof on. Uh, a new pet peeve of mine is the bonus uh, component of compensation uh, and salary deferrals. And I always say if you don't want the headache of people deferring on bonuses and you don't want the headache of bonuses being part of that definition of compensation for purposes of employer contributions, just take it out. Um, you know, as long as it doesn't violate, uh, you know, uh, the definition of compensation because you kind of throw it out of the safe harbor, you'll be fine and, and, and you avoid the headaches of it. But uh, like I said, keep it simple, stupid. Last but not, uh, last but not least, certainly, um, obviously complying with the risk of 404C. You know, too many plan sponsors think that there's some sort of Bulletproof uh, to liability because plant participants the, make the investment elections on their own. That's certainly not the case. Um, but, uh, you know, too many plant sponsors out there believe that. Um, 404C does limit a plant sponsor's liability as long as they provide enough information to plant participants to make informed investment decisions. The regs are kind of silent about it, but here's a heads up providing investment education to plant participants. Going through a, a, a prudent process of selecting and replacing plan investments based on what's going on in the marketplace in terms of those specific funds, uh, those are the building blocks to avoid liability under ERISA 404C. Um, you know, again, we always go back to my old law firm plan because I like to goof on them. Uh, you know, giving me a Morningstar profile for investments that were, you know, picked 10 years ago, that's not going to help any plan sponsor avoid liability on the risk of 404C. So, you know, you know, I, I've been long in this business where Janus 20 was the greatest mutual fund on earth. And uh, I remember when that fund closed and, you know, I was working for TPA trying to get those clients in on that Janus 20. You know, I don't, I don't even know what Janus 20 is doing right now, but I, I assume that it's not as great as it was in 1999. Uh, but I'm sure that there are 4K plans that still have Janus 20 uh, as a huge investment, um, as a big offering on the 4K investment lineup. And, and the plan sponsor and their advisor hasn't reviewed the funds if they have a plan advisor. So it's just one of those tedious tasks that, again, I think plan sponsors avoid uh, – you know, taken care of because they assume, you know, it's kind of like that scene in Austin Powers where Dr. Evo is going to kill Austin Powers. And he's like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to assume everything went to plan and that Austin would die. It's something, you know, goofing on stunt, something that always comes out in the Bond movie. But, you know, that's true with ERISA 404C. You know, plan sponsor assumes that, you know, they got an advisor and participants select funds. And what could go wrong? Well, if the plane spots ignores things, uh, things can certainly go wrong.
So I hope you enjoyed this episode of F1K Podcast as I enjoyed speaking about these topics. Uh, of course, we'll be back next week. And of course, go to that F1K site.com for further information about all our events. So thanks so much. Take care. Bye.